This episode of Ask a Biologist is being pulled from our special collections that have been stored in our secret vault. This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. If you think of, or maybe even have visited a science museum lately, you probably got to see some pretty cool stuff. The question is, who collects all that stuff? And what else do they do with the stuff? other than put it out for visitors to come see. My guest scientists should be able to give us a pretty good idea of what's going on behind the scenes in museums. Richard Forty is a paleontologist who calls the British Natural History Museum home. In fact, he's written a book about the topic called Dry Storeroom Number One, The Secret Life of the Natural History Museum. Welcome to Ask a Biologist, Richard Forty. Well, nice of you to invite me. You know, when you go into these museums, and some of the people might have watched this movie called A Night at the Museum, they're really rich with a lot of displays, and they're really almost kind of like a wonderland to me. What I want to know is what's going on behind the scenes, because there's more than just these displays. Oh, yeah, most museums. What you actually see on display is just like the tip of the iceberg, and the main part of the iceberg is the collections behind the scenes. Now, they're not so glamorous as the ones on display. So if it's a dinosaur, instead of being all nicely rigged up, looking like a dinosaur, it's a whole lot of bones laid out in a drawer. But uh, what everybody should know is that um, that is the scientific basis for all the dinosaurs that you see animated by Disney and Pixar or whatever it happens to be. It's all based ultimately on bones, and those bones are ultimately hiding away in museum drawers. So it's the truth about natural history in collections. Who's collecting all this stuff? Well, people like me. Uh, out we go into the field. We always call it the field. Sometimes to rather remote parts of the world. And if you're a paleontologist, you have, well, you have to do quite hard work. You have to bash rocks to uh, find the fossils hidden away in the rocks. So it's one of those great things where you never know what's going to turn up. Of course, sometimes nothing turns up, and that's a bit disappointing. But sometimes something really exciting turns up. And then, well, you look at it and you say, if you're an expert on it, uh, you say, well, goodness, nobody's ever seen anything quite like this before. Perhaps you've got a new species, or maybe even a new type of dinosaur, for example. And then there's a long period of time where those fossils are extracted from the rock and carefully, we always say they're prepared, uh, which is rather like, sound like you're making dinner or something. But uh, when you get the bones or whatever they are out, you have to piece the creature together and then you put the flesh back on it and then ultimately you've got something that can appear in a textbook or a film. Or in a film. Well, you keep mentioning dinosaurs because I think everybody remembers several movies that have come out, and the paleontologists are all off looking for dinosaurs. But that's not what paleontology is all about. There's more than dinosaurs, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Dinosaurs, it's perhaps the glamour end of the industry. I don't know. But a lot of fossils are much less spectacular, but nonetheless just as interesting and just as varied. And the ones I work on are called trilobites. And there are hundreds, no, actually thousands of different kinds of trilobites very variable in appearance, but only a very few people who actually study them, certainly fewer people than study dinosaurs. 
trilobites, interestingly enough, they are seemingly strange animals, but only because it doesn't seem like we have any of them that are living. There's nothing around here that looks like a trilobite to me. Well, they're extinct, sadly. Um, They died out 250 million years ago, which is a long time. But, of course, they are related to some living animals. Um, They're related to, well, we call them the arthropods, those animals with jointed legs, like crustaceans and and spiders and insects. Uh, The trilobites were another group, major group of these joint-legged animals, and they evolved from very, very early in the history of life, producing many different kinds. And sadly, they died out um, at a great extinction event that occurred at the end of the so-called Paleozoic era. So when you go out and break rocks, as you said, or bash rocks, do you look for any particular kind of rock that there, some are better for finding these fossils? Oh, yes. After a while, if you're a paleontologist... Uh, you get a kind of instinct for where it's going to be good. Sometimes quite hard to explain, but in the U.S., for example, there are huge areas where you get nice limestones. And if you have trilobites preserved in limestones, they're very handsome creatures preserved in their full relief. Sometimes you get them preserved in shales where they look a little sadder and they're squashed down. And, And if they're preserved in shales which have been included in ancient mountain belts and and, uh, squeezed and stretched, then the trilobites can look very sad indeed. But they're still useful, even the the sad-looking ones, because if you know your trilobites, you can say exactly how old those rocks were just from the kinds of trilobites you find in them. When you go looking for them, do you find the entire trilobite fossil in them, or are you just finding pieces? Because I've heard that they're not always easy to get a complete trilobite. No, whole trilobites are a bit of a treat. If you find a really nice whole trilobite, you know, your heart begins to sing. Mostly they were fragmentary. They fell into bits because, like most arthropods, when they grew, they molted. So most of the things you find are molts. And when they molted, they came into various bits, and then the currents could move the bits around. So quite a lot of my life is spent doing rather uh, difficult jigsaw puzzles with various bits of these animals to try and put them back together again. Right. So when you talk about molting, you can talk about some crabs, for example. When they grow larger, they have to shed their outer skeleton. That's exactly right. And then they walk out of it, and so what you're finding are those. Let's talk just a little bit about what a trilobite looks like. Well, I suppose the nearest analogy that you all all know are the little pill bugs or roly-polies that you see when you lift up a rotting log, for example. Except, of course, the trilobites were living under the sea. But they had that kind of sort of three-lobed appearance, hence their name. And indeed, some of them, perhaps the majority of them, were capable of rolling up into a ball, uh, just like a roly-poly, for protection, Hmm. uh, presumably. And some of them were beautifully designed to make um, uh, perfect spheres, even with little locks to lock the head and tail together. But some of them are are much more exotic-looking because they're covered in spines and warts and strange uh, lumps and so on. Uh, So they're a more varied group than are the pill bugs. Right, and the pill bugs are, you know... And they're bigger. Yeah, well, the pill bug's tiny, and you usually find those, of course, up on land or moist areas. Trilobites, where did we find those? They were only found in the sea, 
And some of them grew to the size of um, uh, a large lobster. So they were quite considerable animals. Um, People still argue about, you know, which is the biggest trilobite in the world. But there's some that are not far off a meter in length. Wow, a meter? Getting very large indeed. And others were quite mature when they were a couple of millimeters long. So there was a huge size variation. Right, a lot of Um, And, uh, of course, the bigger they are, the harder they are to find as whole specimens and the longer they take to dig out of the rock. When I look at the fossils of trilobites, especially these really beautiful ones, the ones that aren't so sad, they really are just works of art almost to me. Now, have you been drawn to trilobites on pure looks? Oh, yeah, I think they're objects of beauty. Of course, some of these spectacular ones, are, uh, particularly ones covered in spines, have now become objects of value as well. So if you go down to any of the big fossil fairs, you'll find these things on sale now for a couple of thousand dollars, which is good in a way because it means people are going to look after them, but it's bad for us poor old museums because, as anybody that works in a museum knows, we don't have very deep pockets. So it's harder to get scientifically important specimens sometimes. You're talking about the museums again. In this day of digital technology and the web, do we need to pick ourselves up and literally go out to the museum, or can we see things on the web nowadays? Yeah, there are many virtual tours you can do around museums, and they're good things too, because you don't have to leave your home if you don't want to. But for me, the real business is to go and see actual specimens. I mean, you can't through your television screen, get an idea of just how big some of these things are. Or uh, in some places, you can handle specimens as well. So I don't think there's any substitute for the, for the real thing. So we're not seeing signs that people are stopping going to museums. If, if anything, the attendance has gone up in this age of virtual visits. But no, come and see the real thing, for goodness sake. Do you think with the use of digital technology that there will actually be a slight change to the way natural history museums are presented because we have the ability to do both the digital world and get them to come? Yes, I think there will be changes in museum culture. As far as the curators are concerned, of course, it means you can take people behind the scenes virtually into the collections. And normally you'd have to come and make an appointment with a curator and unlock the cupboards and do all this kind of stuff before you could get near the specimens. And that's going to do a lot for uh, the study of these things, of these specimens. It means that visiting scientists can answer their questions much more quickly, probably. So, yeah, the World Wide Web has made a fantastic difference to the way people have used museum collections, and I might say all for the good. In your talk, you mentioned you had... um, See, how did you say it? Did you say you had nine lives and you'd use some of them up? I was yeah. trying to quite figure out how many. So well, the, A cat, as you know, is legendarily supposed to have nine lives. Right. Well, how many um, have you used up? Eight and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I can't afford any more risks, I think. Okay. So what was your worst risk? Well, I can tell you the officially worst risk was probably falling into the Arctic Ocean, surrounded on all sides by icebergs. Uh, the textbooks say you have four minutes uh, before your body systems shut down. It was my own foolishness that did it. But fortunately, there was a geologist standing near me who pulled me out. I held onto his geological hammer. But I can still remember 
the sheer appalling cold that had spread through me. And this is right on the high Arctic, of course, so you weren't going to warm up just by getting out of the water. So that's certainly one life. I was also caught in a bushfire in Australia. Well, those of you who've seen the news recently will know just how dangerous that can be and terrifying. So I guess that's another of my nine lives. Wow, fire and ice. Fire and ice, yes, yeah. You mentioned that your trilobites went extinct millions of years ago. So we can't see them running around today. But is it possible or has it already been done where there are computer models and you can actually see them, what they might have been like in the ocean? There are animations um, of greater or lesser plausibility because we know quite a lot about their limbs now and how they moved uh, from very exceptionally preserved animals that preserve lots and lots of fine details. So actually you can have a pretty good idea of how they did move and what they looked like when they were alive. Of course, it's not the same as having a living one sitting in the palm of your hand. I wish we could. What are the most fantastic trilobites that you've come across? I think the most amazing are ones that have been discovered just a few years ago in Morocco, one of which has a structure which I've never seen on any other organism. Although I'm always looking out for biologists who might offer suggestions. Uh, This thing carries on its nose a huge fork or trident which must have stuck out in front of the animal as long as the animal itself. seems like a most implausible thing, but it's real enough. And uh, I've no idea what it was for. And when I first saw it, it was so bizarre that I thought somebody was playing a trick and it was a fake. Uh, But by the time I'd seen three or four of them, I knew, of course, it was the real thing. But I still don't know what the trident was for. Hmm. Well, maybe there's a young paleontologist out there that'll uh, take up the challenge and find out what it is. Did uh, trilobites have vision? Did they have very good vision, or did it vary? Well, trilobites are remarkable because they had the first really well-preserved eyes in the fossil record. And yes, they're compound eyes, like an insect eye, made of a number of lenses, But they're also unique because they used calcium carbonate, the same material as their shell, to make their eye lenses. And a surprising amount is known about the optics of this and how it would have worked for them to see the world. So the study of trilobite eyes, there's one scientist of my acquaintance who's actually spent most of his life just studying trilobite eyes. So there's a lot to find out about them. If someone wanted to go look at a bunch of images of trilobites and they weren't able to go to the local museum or maybe they don't have a local natural history museum, where do they go on the web? Where's the best place? You can find a trilobite website called, I think called just trilobites. It's compiled anyway by the man who lives furthest from any trilobites that I can think of. His name is Sam Gon III, G-O-N. If you Google him, you'll find the site. And he lives on Hawaii, Now, if you wanted to get as far away from any trilobites as is physically possible, you go to Hawaii, where the rocks are very young and the nearest trilobites are thousands of miles away. But Sam has set up this wonderful website for trilobites. That is curious, isn't it? You spent a little bit of time in Eureka, Nevada. Yes, yes. As it says, as you enter the town, the loneliest town on the loneliest road in North America. So why go to Eureka, Nevada? 
Around Eureka, Nevada, there are a lot of rocks of Ordovician age, which is the one age I'm particularly interested in, about 450 million years old. And I had reason to believe that there were trilobites being collected there, which had never been discovered before. And uh, this meant driving way out into the desert to find the localities. And, well, there's hard work involved because it gets kind of hot out there, as you can imagine. And there you are breaking rock in the heat. So uh, that's one of those moments when you think, I must be mad to do this. <laughs> but when you find a really good trilobite, it makes it all worthwhile. And we did around Eureka, Nevada. Besides your science career, you've been doing a lot of writing. And it's more of a popular science writing. Do you find it different or is it something that just um, complements the science that you've been doing? Well, it's quite different. It's quite a different thing to do. You see, if you're a scientist, a lot of your life is spent writing scientific papers. And the scientific papers are for your colleagues. And if you work on trilobites, well, I have colleagues, but not huge numbers of them. But if you're writing a popular science book or a science book for, for the general reader then you're writing for not just these small group of colleagues, you're trying to write for everybody. So the way you do it is all important. If you're writing a technical paper, actually the details of how you write doesn't matter. But for writing a, a book, it's the most important thing. So for me, it's quite a different feeling, sitting down trying to write for, for everybody, than writing my technical scientific papers. But you mentioned in your talk yesterday that one of the things that scientists have that a lot of people don't realize is, at least a good scientist, is imagination. And it seems like your popular science writing plus the scientific side, that that really is a quite, that is shared. Yeah, I think so. I think, well, I think the best quality of human beings is probably their imagination. And I think that scientists exercise it in their way novelists in another way. It's just the aspect of being creative. So it's not impossible to turn from one to the other, although quite often people feel they can't. It, it's interesting because on Ask a Biologist, a lot of my scientists have been doing writing, not necessarily popular science writing. With your books, especially the popular science writing, who are you trying to reach? Who are you writing them for? What I'm trying to do is enthuse people. That's the most important thing to me. Uh, people who probably never really thought, say, about the history of life on this planet, uh, if they read one of my books, I hope they'll be stimulated to go further. Uh, so, um, well, we always have to reach somebody that's called, I think, the intelligent layman is how my publisher always describes it. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, that's an awful lot of people. The phrase I like using nowadays is science savvy. Science it, savvy, yes. Yeah. <laughs> On this show, I ask three questions of every scientist. Um, the first one is, when did you first know you wanted to be a scientist or a biologist? A lot of scientists of my kind, I think, are sort of born. And uh, so I was very young indeed. I mean, I was interested in birds from a very young age. I'd soon learned the, flower, the common wild flowers. I moved from one group of organisms to another. And when you're young, of course, your memory is good and you think you can know everything. Well, you can't. But uh, So I think I was probably destined to move in that direction early on. What if I took it all away from you? You can't be a scientist. 
and you're not going to be I'm going to take away archaeology and a lot of the things that are peripheral. And if you had to do it again and you weren't allowed to do the science side, what would you be or what would you do? Well, I think I would probably be a writer because I've always liked writing, which is why I write books, of course, uh, which people enjoy reading, I hope. I guess I might have been some kind of novelist. What if someone's out there that wants to become a biologist, better yet, a paleontologist interested in trilobites? What's your advice? Um, it would be great to have some more trilobite people. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is it's rather a long journey because you've got to do your first degree and then you've got to get the right person to supervise you for a doctorate. And then these days you have to be patient after that before you get a job in a museum or a faculty in a, a university. It is a long journey. Of course, it's worth it when you get there, but it does require persistence, I think, more than anything else. Did you ever want to throw it all in, you know, and just give it up? Was there ever a moment that you were doing it and you thought, oh, there's got to be a better way? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, apart from the occasional time in the field where I've panicked in some slightly precarious situation, where I've thought, why am I doing this? I must be mad. But that doesn't happen very often. Before we close the show, could you read from a page from your book, Dry Storeroom Number 1, The Secret Life of the Natural History Museum? Yeah, uh, thank you. I'll read a little passage about um, several of the characters and how they came to resemble the organisms they worked on. I have speculated from time to time as to whether researchers come progressively to resemble the organisms upon which they research. There is a certain amount of evidence for my thesis, although I doubt whether it would survive rigorous statistical examination. For example, I have come to resemble a trilobite as I have got older, particularly as regards the middle lobe of my anatomy. A former keeper of zoology, Colin Kurds, worked upon very small organisms that lived in sewage, and he did indeed resemble some kind of obscure microorganism, such as one might observe on a slide, being a little man with a pointy beard who darted around in a manner rather like paramecium. Gordon Corbett, who worked on small mammals, was a Scotsman, with a hesitant manner and a nervous way of speaking. For some reason, he reminded me of a vole, the way these animals pause momentarily, whiskers twitching. But there were some particularly striking examples in the entomology department. W.M.P. Barbellion, his diary entry 20th of April 1914, had noted such resemblances when he remarked, an entomologist is a large, hairy man with eyebrows like antennae. Ian Yarrow worked on bumblebees, particularly the genus Bombus, and he was a man with a very comfortable, rounded middle. He had a fondness for furry jumpers, which gave him a thoracic look, and on one occasion I saw him wearing a woolly sweater with broad horizontal stripes. Furthermore, he used to hum to himself. Once I followed him down the front steps of the museum as he bounced from foot to foot, going bzz, bzz, bzz quietly. <laughs> I love it. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been paleontologist Richard Forty from the British Natural History Museum. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the Grassroots Studio, housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is a division of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.com. 
Ask.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.